Opie, this is the episode that almost finished before it began. I almost hit the finish, the end button before the start recording button. I mean, mm. it's like week three of the season and already I, I don't know what that excuse is for that. But anyway, at least I don't know here. either. At least on the, you know, the game broadcast, we can use it as an excuse because uh, we haven't been doing them for the last 19 months. But this we've been doing. So I don't know where that comes from. Like Maybe there's just too many things on the go right now. There might be. I mean, the whole rebrand of the station where we broadcast now it's city news 570 but we're still right there in the arenas bringing you kitchen arrangers hockey on city news 570 so don't worry about that you'll still find the games where you expect to find the games well that's a good thing i'm, I'm still it's going to take some time for me to get used to that station rename i'll tell you that for free we're gonna we're gonna write a big sign and put it in front of us in the broadcast booth just so we say the right words at the right time yeah. it's simple how many times do you think you drop a 570 news on? Tuesday? I don't know. This is the thing. So, so far, uh, I, I've been, I'm going to knock wood, but it's been okay on the, on the air during the day. But I've started like a swear jar, and it's the, say, the old station name jar. And a loony goes in every time I screw it up. And then at Christmas time, we'll donate that to a worthwhile charity. So, win win, right? Well, I lose, but the charity wins. Buddy, get the whole station involved, get the newsroom involved too. The newsroom keeps dropping the old 570 bombs. We got we to gotta work news. on them a little bit. Got to work on them a little bit. The good um, news this, is, is that you'll see this branding everywhere. Everywhere. This is all ties in. Did you get that? As, I did indeed. Okay. I, I and I heard it in John Daly's voice, just so uh, you know. Oh, who didn't? This all ties into our uh, guest this week, who is not only a longtime official across junior hockey, but also... Uh, a longtime member of the sports media. And so admittedly, you and I do geek out a little bit over that side of it, but I think there is a general interest in how we do our jobs and how others who do their jobs far better than we do ours have done their jobs in the past. So I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation that we're about to hear and, and some of the names. Oh my goodness gracious, does he have names to drop from Eddie Belfort to Eddie Olchick to the Dvorsky names, which are, you know, in Waterloo region and, and the Guelph area, pretty big names and officiating lots of uh, interesting stories coming up. Yeah. And just a all around nice guy. Like we talked about it on the podcast, but one of his good friends is the iconic Bob Elliott. And he said, Bob Elliott was quoted as saying, um, there may be not a nicer person in sports media, but I don't know them. So that's pretty, you know, a, a pretty nice thing for a guy like Bob Elliott to say about Steve McAllister. Um, and I, I loved his, I love chatting with him and he lives up in Kincardine, God's country. No kidding. I mean, right? and there's a little talk about taking this podcast on the road. Anyway, we'll get we'll, all of that to come there. There's something I did want to kind of talk to you about as, as we look ahead to week three in the Ontario hockey league, Popey, and And that is the attendance that we saw at the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium, because that's where we do our home broadcast uh, in week two. So the season started for the Kitchener Rangers on Friday, October the 8th, a day after the, you know, there are three games on Thursday, the 7th, Friday, the 8th. And at that time, we were still operating as a league and as a province at 50% capacity in hockey arenas, in indoor settings. As we got to the rink for that first Rangers game, we learned that the province was 
opening it up to 100%. So we were going to play a game on Saturday in Guelph. And the storm were able to kind of scramble and get another thousand tickets out for sale. They couldn't fully max out their capacity, but they were able to get more bums in more seats on the Saturday. But that had me looking ahead to the second week of the season and the second Friday home date for the Kitchener Rangers. And you know, as well as I do, and anybody that follows the Ontario Hockey League knows that when it comes to attendance numbers, you look at Kitchener, you look at London, you look at Windsor to some degree, certainly when they were competitive, you look at Ottawa before uh, it still, it still hurts my heart. You know how much it hurts my heart to look at the Ottawa 67s prior to the whole relocation renovation, the red blacks coming into the whole TD arena area. Now stadium space, it, what we see now in Ottawa is it just pales in comparison to what used to be a Saturday or a Sunday in that place back in the day, you know, nine, thousand fans watching junior hockey it was a it was a sight to behold but anyway we know the spots where attendance is is high where people show up for the games and week two second friday of the season in kitchener and they barely had more fans than the week before when capacity was only allowed at 50 percent. there were about 3900 in for the first game maxed out at 50 percent capacity the following week, when they could have had 7,700 as per the rules, they had 4,300. That's tiny. That's real tiny. Very tiny. But are you, are you shocked? As a matter of fact, yes. I would, yeah. I would go so far as to say shocked. And, and I think there are a few things then that kind of come into play. I say shocked just because we are accustomed to seeing 6,000 plus in the building uh, and credit to Adam on Twitter who did the work. I'll take him at his word. I haven't looked it up myself, but he said that crowd of 4365 was the smallest Rangers home crowd in 20 years going back wow. to 2002. So that's a long time for a crowd that small. And I, again, I will say shocked because I was really thinking that with pent up demand, there would be, more than 7,000, even though our averages are, you know, closer to six. But I thought, yeah, with pent up demand, we're talking 7,000. And I'm, I'm starting to wonder what this means for a variety of reasons. One, I think first and foremost, there is a great deal of caution still out there when it comes to what one does in a world where COVID still exists. Of course. But look, we've got vaccination requirements, vaccina vaccination policies in place. You cannot get into the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium or any other Ontario Hockey League arena in on this side of the border without providing proof of vaccination. So you know going in there that you're only around other vaccinated folks. So the level of risk is significantly reduced. It's not nil, but it's significantly reduced. So I thought that that would provide a level of comfort. So I, I think about that and I think about, okay, if we are still that cautious, and again, 4,300 when you're expecting 65, maybe 7,000, that's a significant 35, 40% lower than what could have been in the building. If we really are that cautious still, I think this says a lot about our economic rebound in this province. And probably if things are playing out like this across the country, the economic rebound, the economic recovery in the country from COVID-19, if we're going to be that cautious to go out and do things and to that cautious to go out and spend our money, I think there's going to be a longer return to 
normal economically. And then further to that, I think we can ask some questions. I wonder if the league is concerned at all. I know it's really early returns. So you can come at me if you want to, but still the league did lose one whole season, a full 68 games. It lost two playoffs. It lost two Memorial Cups. If this isn't raising an eyebrow or at least something, a number that the league is monitoring, I'd be surprised that they're not monitoring it. Because I wonder how much of an impact that lost time is having right now if people found other things to do on Friday nights or Sunday afternoons. Maybe. Um, but I, I'm not as shocked as you are, I guess. Um, through my full-time job, obviously, I'm bouncing around all over um, our wonderful region um, and going into restaurants and the like, and I'm not seeing anyone. I really thought that I would see a lot more people. Um, the restaurants and bars would be more packed with the double vaccination mandate. People aren't coming out right now. And I think it's still the fear of what we're dealing with. Yes, I think people have been hit hard financially through all this, and that's probably leading into some of it. But I, the majority of people I still feel are a little timid. And if you look at the OHL as a whole, and especially Kitchener, the large group that makes up their fan base is of the elderly community. They're the most at risk. They're probably the most nervous to go back out. They're probably sitting at home thinking, I have my double vax, but we're already seeing people around the world get booster shots. How protected against this am I? Do I feel comfortable enough to go into an enclosed building of 7,000 people, or I can sit at home and listen to City News 570 and take in my game that way. That's yeah. where I think, and, and it's going to take some time. But we, we, talk, we just talked about it with Steve McAllister about this league and how it doesn't get the attention that it deserves. But it also doesn't get the marketing that it deserves. There's not a whole lot of marketing besides you know, Sportsnet playing five games last year or whatever. This league needs to do a better job in connecting with the younger demographic in each market to make sure people continue to come out to these games. See, so there are two things that I think of off of what you just said. And yeah, this has been on my mind since the weekend. The one is I would have thought, again, just I know I'm being the ultimate homer here, but we're looking at the attendance in Kitchener mm -hmm. and where the Rangers play in a region, just the region of Waterloo, four townships, three cities of 630,000 people. We're talking 7,700 tickets. I would have thought for every older, more cautious hockey fan, there would have been somebody willing to take their ticket out of 630,000, 7,700. That would have been my guess. But the, the other thing, I think about them when, when you, you talk about that and, and their caution, because I, I do, I, I love that they would consume the game on City News 570. I love that they're getting information about this game by listening to this podcast. However it is, they have decided in the time between games to consume hockey if they want to listen to it, if they want to watch it, whatever they're doing, that's great. But I hope that they haven't been doing that for so long that that becomes their new normal. And here's the thing. I actually caught myself last weekend. We had a pretty busy kind of family fun Sunday running around and it's getting on dinner time. I'm like, you know what? We're not going to cook at home. We're going to, we're going to go out for dinner, but going out for dinner 
Popper for us was ordering takeout because that's just, and I found myself standing, shout out Duca Wellington for another delicious meal. But I found myself standing at the entrance to the restaurant. It was really full inside, which was great, but it never even occurred to me that we would go out for dinner. We just, like we have been doing for the past 18 months or so, supported our local restaurant by getting curbside pickup, by doing the takeout thing. And I'm here to, I'm going to tell you right now, the older I get, and, and you know, you know how curmudgeonly I can be at times. We sit shoulder to shoulder on a bus through all the seasons. We spend time together on the road in hotels. The older I get, the less I like crowds. That's just, I'm just being honest. Like it gets me a little bit, I, I just need some space. I went to a Jays game when they were still only allowing 15,000 in. And I sat in some physically distanced seats out in the outfield. I'm like, I like this. There's a seat on either side. There's nobody in front. I, I liked the space. But if our new normal or our next normal is a normal that includes less socialization and interaction with our fellow humans, I want no part of that next normal. No part of it. Go back to the damn hockey game. Uh, yeah. Well, I get it with the hockey game. I hate crowds to begin with. Um, so I'm I, wondering when I'm your age, Mike, am I really going oh, to hate you have, If you hate them now, Popey, you have no idea what's coming down the pipe for you, pal. Just taking a, a look at the attendance. Um, I don't London I'm not did, hockey DB, but I t- took a look. London did 7,800 on the second weekend, which is pretty good for them. Yeah. And I just looked basically Saturday, Sunday on the second okay. weekend. Uh, the Meridian Center in Niagara, uh, just shy of 3,800. It's not bad. Progressive Auto Sales down in Sarnia, 2,700. The Dow. Had a fantastic evening at 5,200. Uh, Sadlon and Barry, 2,400. The Lummer, Harry Lumley Bayshore Community Center up in Owen Sound, just shy of 2,000. Yeah, see, that's a small number up there. And that we is, talked on Friday in Kitchener to a scout that had been up there for that midweek game last week between Guelph and Owen Sound and said, in a hockey mad community like Owen Sound, mm-hmm. the crowd was small. Again, you're talking an older demographic, even in the community. And to your point earlier about the caution that would come with that demographic, but I'm sure the league is watching and I know it's early, but it's a trend that if, if you don't see it start to change, if you don't see an uptick in the attendance figures at these games, you do have to start asking the questions about how much equity in this league was lost in the 19 months it was away. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm I'm not gonna question that. After only, well, London's played five games. Kitchener's played three. One game of Kitchener's has been full attendance. I'm not gonna. If if by Christmas people still aren't back, sure. Then we got some worrying to do. I think. Yep. Um, Gus approves barking in the background there. Perfect. Um, Was he approved to the London Knights playing five game games and winning them all, or what is he approving of? No, I don't think okay. so. No, all right. Uh, he agrees with my point, um, but. Yeah, like it, I think it is a little worrisome, but it's one game, so I'm not going to put that much cre- or not put that much weight on it, emphasis on it. Um, and maybe it's because I, I strongly believe it's because of the COVID vaccine vaccines, um, people being a little still cautious to go out, and the demographic in large part of the fan base around the OHL. I'm that, getting that, that's my reasoning. My my the jerk who runs this place keeps poking his head in here. And, Does he uh, want to give us a raise? Well, I need to go find out. He's very anxious, mm. but I, I think you're, you're right. And I'm not trying to be an alarmist 
because it is only coming into week number three. But just so low was that crowd in Kitchener that it has me asking questions. And then the questions I'm asking are, how much caution is out there? If it's all about caution, what about the overall economic recovery? And if it's not just about caution, but about people finding other things to do with their time, I love this game. I want this game to succeed. I want to be a part of this game for the rest of my days. I have no doubt that the league's going anywhere, but I just think, you know, these are, these are things that uh, we should be monitoring. And listen, there's two markets that I'd look at that I, that I honestly thought that we talked about that I thought fans will come back immediately. And that was London and Kitchener. I thought other markets, I could see people or teams struggling for a little bit. London and Kitchener, the minute it opens up, fully packed, let's go. I would have bet my house on it. Same. And thank God I didn't. <laughs> you and because me both. For, for London to only do five and for Kitchener to do four, that's not good on either end, really. So I'm a little shocked by the whole whole thing. But um, one, here's hoping that next weekend it's jammed again. But The one wager that we did make, uh, just touching on that for a moment, yeah. uh, you got a long way to go, buddy. You still got 38 goals to go in uh, uh, 37 games. He's three, three for three. He's three for three. He's got a goal every game. He's on pace for 68. I'll take my money and be happy with it. Okay. Okay. We'll see. We'll see. 40 on Pinelli, the Rangers' newly minted captain, is uh, the wager that was made between Chris and I. No disrespect to the kid. I just think 40 this year might be uh, lofty, but we'll see. 40 is a big number. Yeah. It Although is, you, I know why you took it because goaltending in this league is a little bit different this year than in years past. And boy, oh boy, did we see that on opening weekend, although things settled down a wee bit in week two. Yeah, that's basically why I picked it. And because I think he has something to prove. Um, six points in three games, that's a, quite the start for him. Also, I'll say that. He's only uh, one point shy. Or sorry, he has six. Yeah, he's uh, three points shy of uh, Brandon Coe and Callum Ritchie at, sitting at nine. And they're trailing a defenseman, Jack Thompson, with 11 in six games to start off the season up in Sudbury. Got to love Thompson up there where the Wolves howl. And they have been so far in Callum Ritchie, uh, one of two OHL performers of the week, along with the London Knights goaltender, Brett Brochu. All right. Um, uh, sorry, we, we don't, we're not seeing the Eastern Conference this year. No. Nope. Um, because of scheduling, because of COVID. So maybe you missed it. But did you see what Jay McKee is doing in Hamilton right now? <laughs> did I see? I keep half an eye on it just because... I thoroughly enjoyed Jay as a human being for sure. Uh, when he was in Kitchener, getting to know him a little bit, I, I, I really liked the way his mind worked. We had a lot of good conversations on the road. He's a previous guest of this podcast. So uh, yeah, I've been watching. There were a couple of come from behind wins in there and the uh, Hamilton Bulldogs are motoring right along under Jay McKee. I just wanted to point out that they've played four games and have allowed six goals. Six goals in four games. That's crazy. What a start. Holy. Maybe they've got some shot blocking defensemen helping out on that. Like, you know, Jay McKee might have been when he was an NHLer. Maybe. I think it's their goalie, but still. Six goals against in four games. That's crazy. Pretty good. That's all I have for you. Okay, well, yep. we always uh, like the way you introduce our guests. We've we've teased that he's got some stuff to talk about sports journalism-wise, but also plenty of stories from the league that we're sure you're going to enjoy. I really need to start prepping these a little better because you always <laughs> reference, oh, you do a good job, and 
Well, this honest, was your thing. You, you I know, but to be thing. honest, I was working all morning and then okay, I quickly ate lunch, sit down. I'm like, oh, you know, Steve McAllister. And then now I'm not prepared for this intro and I'm going to suck and people are going to be like, oh my gosh, he sucks at that. Anyway, um, <laughs> he's now working. <laughs> the problem uh, is, and he admits it in the conversation, the man's had way too many jobs. Like which yeah. one are you going to like, which ones are you going to leave out? I'll, well, I'm going to leave out a few. Okay. But what I am going to say is when he was in charge of Yahoo Sports, it was the pinnacle of junior hockey coverage in this country. Absolutely. In large true. part to him and hiring the right people to put the resources towards the CHL and the buzzing the net blog. It was also the highlight by a country mile of Yahoo because no one has went to Yahoo besides fantasy sports players in the last decade. I didn't even know it was still a thing. Exactly. Yeah. Then goes on to the Globe and Mail. He covers World Series. He covers Olympics. He's all over the map. He eventually, he's actually the president of Sports Media Canada right now. Long story short, he started in Kincardine. He went off on the road, fell in love in Kincardine, and that's where he resides now. Uh, Mr. Sports Media in this country, it seems like, Steve McAllister. So full disclosure as we get this episode started, and we're going to talk to a guy that spent a lot of time on the ice wearing a striped jersey, which I think is second only to goaltenders as weird choices in the game of hockey. But on the full disclosure front, I, I got to start and geek out just a little bit with our guest, Steve McAllister, because, and Chris, I know that you share this uh, affinity for the, the side of the game that covers the game, be it in broadcast like we do or in print. And when I was starting out, this guy, Steve McAllister, editor at the Globe and Mail Sports Department, then managing editor at Yahoo Sports, as I was, I mean, this is the guy's stuff that I'm reading and, and starting to learn more about the league. And I get, you know, information from, because it was harder to come by way back in the day, some 20 years ago or so. So Steve, I want to start there with you, if if we can. What led you into the the media side of the industry and, and sports media particularly? Yeah, well, first of all, guys, thank, thanks for having me, Mike. I think you and I, I feel like you and I are old friends. Even I though think so. <laughs> this is the first time we probably have met face-to-face, even on a Zoom call. And, and Chris, obviously, followed you on Twitter. I love I love this show, so I do appreciate the opportunity to, to, to join you guys. And hopefully I can I can do justice and uh, live up to the, the other guests that you've had on the past. But, yeah, for me, it's a, it's a real simple story that I've told many times. I was um, – you know, realized in high school and in grade 11 that I was never going to be a professional athlete. Um, I was terrible at math. Uh, and I loved, uh, I loved reading about sports. I, I still, I still have a scrapbook of, uh, I grew up in a, a town in Eastern Ontario, Prescott, and uh, I used to clip out NHL roundups and Brockville Braves game stories from the Brockville Recorder and Times and put them in a scrapbook. And I just love storytelling. I was an avid reader at that, that time. I, I remember going to the Prescott Library, and um, I think I read uh, Roger Crozier's autobiography about 30 times, uh, you know, between the age of 8 and, and 18. And uh, I knew I wanted to be a sports writer. And uh, so left Prescott, uh, went, to, went to Ryerson, got my journalism degree, and then I uh, got my first newspaper job in, in Kincardine in 1981, which, you know, turned out to be uh, great for me in so many ways. Uh, met met my wife here. Um, now moving, we just moved back up here two years ago, so we've kind of come full circle. And and my wife's retired up here. I'm, I'm, I'll retire at some point, hopefully before the age of eighty. 
Um, and uh, been blessed to have a really terrific career in not only media guys, but just, you know, having a chance to, to referee in the OHA for 10 years and meeting so many great people, including Scott Hutchison, who was on your show this summer. And again, people like Troy Smith, just through my work at Yahoo and, and through working with Sanaya Zapurji back then. So I, I've, I've had a terrific career and it's, it's, I really appreciate the opportunity to share a few of those stories with you guys today. What did the young Steve McAllister moving from Prescott think of King Carden when he first got there? Yeah, it's funny, Chris. I, I'd been up here once when I was a child because when Bruce, the Bruce Nuclear Power Plant, uh, when they began construction back in I think the late 60s, or early 70s, I actually had some family who had moved up here from the Prescott area to, to work at uh, Douglas Point. So I'd been up here once and, you know, I remember, I, think, I remember driving up here for my job interview on a, I think a cold, dark day and in March and thinking, boy, this is a pretty small town, but uh, uh, met some really met the owners of the local sports store right away, had a good interview. And I think because I come from a small town, I, I figured I was going to have to pay my two dues in this business. I was going to go get a job at a weekly newspaper out of journalism school and, and uh, you know, cover high school hockey or sorry, high school sports and junior hockey and, and work my way up the ladder and hopefully one day maybe have a chance to, to work at the Globe Mail or the Toronto Star or the Toronto Sun and, and cover professional sports. It's funny because you've got that side of it, but you also made reference to uh, that the 10 years officiating in, in the OHA. And you said earlier that you knew you were never going to make it as an athlete. I think it's underrated or underappreciated how much skating you guys are doing while you're out there. But what led you into that side of the game? Yeah, so my uh, my father was a really good official, Mike. When I was growing up, he uh, uh, it's funny, you know. Leo Boyvin just fled over the past weekend, and Leo's a hockey Hall of Famer and, and a Prescott guy who who came back to Prescott after his career. And Leo was coaching uh, Dennis Poppin on the Ottawa 67s in the early 70s, and my dad was refereeing a lot of Tier Two hockey and, and uh, senior hockey at the time down east in Ontario. And Leo recommended uh, my dad to the the, uh, the OHA was re, was was the OHA back then, and so my dad refereed junior hockey for a couple of years. I uh, was lucky enough to he was a linesman in the American Hockey League for a year when when the Syracuse Eagles had a franchise that the Vancouver Canucks and St. Louis Blues both cooperated, and that's how I got my foot in the door with officiating and. Uh, and again, just uh, I wasn't a great hockey player, guys. I played a little bit of junior B as a teenager back home, but um, refereeing really gave me a chance to, uh, you know, I refereed a couple of American Hockey League preseason games, had a chance to do some national championships in Canada, including a, a few in, in your area, guys. And, uh, and, and again, just met so many people and a lot of the stories. I probably have as many stories from my short time of fishing in the OHA as I do a, as a media person. Is the um, camaraderie closer in the media world or the refereeing world? I'll tell you what, Chris. We, we had I was uh, my the five years I was concurrent. We had a lot of fun. It was uh, back then you were making eighteen dollars to be out to work a line, as a linesman at a junior C game or junior B game on a Friday night. Whether we were going to Stratford or Penetanguishene or, or Hanover. Uh, but it was a lot of fun back then. You know, uh, I did most of my traveling with Clark Pollock, who I'm sure both of you guys are familiar with from his days of fishing and now his son, Kevin, being a longtime NHL official. 
but you know, you throw a few beers in the back of a car on the Friday night and you drive to drive to a game and you'd pick up some burgers on the way home and, and sit there and talk about the game and argue about the rule book and, and, but, and also work, just working good hockey and so much fun. And the one thing about Clark is he, Clark knew somebody in every arena. If we went to Petrolia for a senior A game, there'd be a knock on the door after the game. And, and it was uh, Dale and Mark Hunter's dad who wanted to come in and say hi to, uh, to Clark. Or uh, there was an old OHA guy, Pat Doherty from Kitchener. And we seemed to every, you know, two or three times a year, there'd be a knock on the door and then it would walk Pat and he and Clark would be telling, uh, you know, trading war stories about the officiating days. So, uh, the re- even though we had the opportunity to referee good hockey, it was like a night a night out for me. That's the camaraderie between you as colleagues. But what's happening in between those drives to the rink and those burgers on the way home can be a completely different story. What do you remember as some of maybe the toughest barns you had to officiate a game in, where the fans might have been a little aggressive or a little vo- vocal? Yeah, I'll tell you, the toughest toughest game I ever worked in was uh, Clark and I went to Barry one night when you guys m- might be too young to remember, but the Streetsville Derbies used to have a real, really tough team in the old Central Junior Hockey League in the early 80s. And we had a playoff game against uh, the, Barry, uh, the Barry Junior B Colts back then. And it seemed every whistle there was a scrum and just a real tough game that night. I think it lasted three hours, a lot, lot of penalties involved. Uh, so that was a game that sticks out. Um, I never forget being in Petrolia one Friday night for a, a senior A game between Petrolia and Cam- the Cambridge Hornets, which was uh, you know the hottest robbery in that league back then, in a really good hockey league. And Cambridge had a defenseman named Brian Cross who could shoot the puck as hard as Al McKinnon. It's just just a great defenseman. I, I could never understand why Brian didn't have a career in the NHL. He got into a fight this night with a guy from Petroli named Ron Musselman, who I believe was also a really good softball player. And those two guys traded punches for three or four minutes. And when they were all done, the other linesman and I would basically put them on our shoulders, the two of them, and drag them to the penalty box. They were so exhausted. Um, uh, you know, I was involved in a bench-clearing brawl one night in the old uh, Central Junior, Ontario Junior B Hockey League in Milton. The Milton uh, Merchants and the Oakville Blades, again, two real rivals, um, two hard-nosed, two hard-nosed coaches. I think a guy named Ken Moody was coaching the, the Blades, and uh, Jerry Inglis, who was an old uh, old school hockey guy, was coaching Milton. And we had a bench clearing brawl at the end of the period. And I remember, you know, that's one of those things where it's, you get a little bit uh, a little bit nervous about someone getting hurt and, and the wrong people being on the ice. Um, you know, so certainly times like that, you kind you kind of remember it. I but I would say that's the part of the game that wasn't so fun. You mentioned Moody and Ingles, but were there any coaches that you were um, had had a few run-ins with during your time on the ice? Probably, maybe in, in minor hockey, Chris, you'd have the odd the odd guy. I never forget um, uh, when I was writing for the Concordia News up here. There was a minor. Uh, I, I found out about a kid who'd got thrown out of a game. Uh, for for gross misconduct for doing something was really untoward and he was a bantam age player and i so i wrote a really scathing column in the in the paper the next week and and there was some outrage because this kid had been suspended and his dad was the coach and the people in walker didn't didn't think he should be suspended so it turns out a week later i'm refereeing this team and uh in concordon and uh so i skate on the ice and right away everybody knows who i am the coach knows knows i'm the guy who wrote the column and and I think they're a little bit worried that I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to, there's going to be a parade of Walker and players going on the penalty box. Well, 
I, I wrote the column. I said my piece, and I think they were really surprised when I we went out and I called the game like any other game I would referee. And but I could see when, when the look on his face when I skated on the ice. I, you know, I think I had to go over and uh, shovel his jaw off the ground. <laughs> How much? You know, Chris and I were just talking about this on our broadcast last weekend. When it comes to uh, penalties in the game. Like every time somebody's on their way to the box, it's kind of like the, the who me sort of thing. And coaches are objecting and thinking, well, if this is a call, then why wasn't that a call? How much of your job involves that very thing? The communication with the players, with the benches to let them know how this game is going to be called and, and why it is they might be on their way to the penalty box for two minutes or more. Yeah, I think that's the one part of the game, Mike and Chris, that unfortunately has changed for officials. I don't think they do nearly enough communication with with coaches and especially players anymore. And that was one thing I really learned from both my father and, and from Clark is that, uh, you know, Clark had a great rapport with the players and was quite willing to talk to players. And, uh, you know, he would give he would give guys breaks. I mean, guys that treated him with respect, he might he might let let go a little trip in the neutral zone in the second period, in a, you know, a nothing, nothing game or a three goal game or whatever. Uh, but the guys that didn't treat you with respect, like Clark didn't have a whole lot of lot of time for them. Um, and I think, and the one thing, the, the best piece of advice that Clark ever gave me was you can't call too many penalties. And I think what he meant by that is that you get yourself in a lot of trouble when you don't call penalties. Uh, and we've seen it, we've seen it in the games from the, the league that you guys cover right through the NHL, where you let the scrums fester and you let every, you know, all of a sudden you've had scrums, every whistle guys are getting frustrated and all of a sudden there's a two hander or a sucker punch or something that sets off a melee. So that was the one thing I, I learned from Clark is is uh, is to you know call penalties, and just a quick funny story. Bill Dvorsky was like that. Uh, you know when Bill was in the OHA, I remember Bill supervising me my first year where when I was wearing the the armbands in the OHA. I went to Guelph one night and someone mentioned to me like, "Hey, got Steve, just so you know that whenever Bill's in the building supervising, you call everything in the first period, you call a little bit less in the second period, and in the third period you can just put the whistle in the pocket." So oh, it was a textbook game. So Bill's there. So I do exactly what I'm told. I, I throw, you know, I fill the box in the first period, ease off a little bit in the second period. And then I saw Bill going to the referee's room to write out his report with about seven minutes left. And I just put my whistle in the pocket. And I can't remember who Guelph was playing that night, but they just went at each other, hammer and tongs for the last, last seven minutes. And I didn't call a single penalty. And of course, when I went in the referee's room, Bill gave me a glowing review. That's great. I'm sure the players loved it too. Oh yeah. And I, I think, and I loved, uh, you know, like I could tell, like I said to you guys off camera, where I could tell we could spend an hour and a half talking about Clark Pollock, but I never forget being in Durham with Clark on a Sunday afternoon for a senior game. And, and there was a, a player for the Durham Huskies named Bruce Marshall. And he, he swore, he dropped a couple of F bombs on Clark in the first period. So Clark gave him misconduct. When the game's over, we're sitting in our underwear in the in the referee rooms, and there's a knock on the door, and there's Bruce Marshall holding four balls of beer, and he says, "You know, can I come in, guys?" And Clark says, "Yeah, sure, come on in, sit down with us, Bruce." And Bruce says, "Geez, Clark, I'm really sorry. I had a fight with my wife this morning, and I was in a bad mood, and I took it out on you." And we sat, we sat there, the three of us had a beer with Bruce, and you know, you couldn't. I don't think you could get away with that today. But that was also part of the fun behind refereeing. And, and again, that's just the fact that uh, this guy would offer us a beer and the fact that we would sit in the room after a game and talk about him having a d- domestic dispute. 
and having some fun fun with that. I think that's the kind of thing that when you next time you saw Durham, uh, that relationship would be good. Steve, when we uh, we talked about having Troy Smith on last week, and we joked with Troy, he told us that he would only come on the podcast if he came on after Pete Krupski. Um, I think it's because Troy didn't cop to this, but I think it is because he wanted to be able to uh, make sure anything Krupper said that Troy had the last word. So Sanaya might not like this question because now you have the last word, but do you have any good Sanaya Sapergi stories? Don't, uh, I mean, I'm sure we, we both, uh, the three of us know her affinity for Tim Horton's coffee. I mean, she's a walking billboard for, for things. Uh, used to be I her Twitter profile. Yeah, I don't think she'll dispute that. She does have very strange tastes in music. Um, she, you know, she wrote a great piece in The Athletic a couple of years ago about uh, about these rock bands or some kind of music bands that I've, I've never heard of. I, maybe that makes me old and, and maybe uh, Sanaya is a lot more sophisticated about music than, than I am. But to be honest, I, I don't have any uh, any bad stories on Sanaya and, and just, just so much respect. I mean, one of one of the best hires I made when I went to Yahoo in, in 2010 was to bring Sanaya on board her, as their junior hockey uh, editor. And she gave us immediate respect in that category. Um, you know, did so much good, good work on that, on that beat for us at Yahoo. And that was, you know, something I, re- I don't really talk about. I mean, one of my decisions to walk away from Yahoo in 2016 was that they told me when Sanaya was on maternity leave that they, uh, they wanted to, to cut our junior hockey coverage. And I, I just thought that was a, a mistake. I think we really built up a lot of credibility, not, not just within the OHL circles, but across the country with, with what Sanaya and, you know, people like Nate, Nate Sager. And uh, we had Chris Peters there for a time and Cam Sharon and um, uh, Kelly Freeze and uh, all the people that contributed to buzzing the net in our junior hockey coverage. Um, what a great job he did. And Sanaya won an award for, for the work that she did on the ter- Terry Trapper tragedy. Uh, you know, we, she did some groundbreaking work in that. And at a time now, kind of ironically, when we, we see so much being talked about around mental health and, and professional athletes today, um, in some respects, that series that uh, Sanaya did was, was somewhat groundbreaking. That's like a who's who of junior hockey coverage that you just ran down there, Stephen. I'm thinking, yep, read them, read them, read them, read them. That And and Chris and I, again, we'll talk about this quite a bit. Uh, not sure, and I, I suspect you would agree, that the league today gets the coverage, really, it deserves in the Globe and Mail, online, in a in a place like Yahoo, et cetera. It's, it's really kind of turned into that sort of grassroots in-market coverage these days. Yeah, that's a great point, Mike. And I think when people talk about the media industry and, and old timers like me, you know, look back at what, what I would consider to be the, the glory years of the industry. I still think there's, if you're a young, bright, uh, energetic guy, um, you can, you can turn something into a good job. And, and you two guys are, are proof of that where your passion for junior hockey, it, it shows clearly through this show that you do. Um, you know, I, I look at a young guy like Lucas Weiss, who started writing OHL column for the Toronto Star. I mean, Lucas, when he did the Centennial College program, I appeared on a podcast with him during the pandemic. And this is a guy who just grinded his way into a job at sports. Now he's, he's freelance for USA Today and New York Times and for Yahoo Sports. And I think if you want to work hard and, and you have a passion for sports, there's still are opportunities to work in this business. It's just a different model now. It's different, I think, even 
Mike, for what you and I did. I mean, I spent seven years working at weekly newspapers before I got my big break and, and got a job at the Canadian press back in 1988. I think the, you know, if you want to call it the minor league system, I think it's just a different path to, to get to where you want to get to these days. Thinking back to those Yahoo days, like Yahoo was massive. They had J.E. Skeets covering NBA, Wyshynski obviously covering the NHL, Buzz in the Net and everyone at the OHL. What was it like working at that company when it was really at its peak? Yeah, that was, I tell you, Chris, that was so much fun. And, and uh, I was so lucky. I, I started at Yahoo in December 2009. And, and my, first day, my first day in the job was flying out to Los Angeles for an Olympic summit. And uh, I got out there Monday and met, meeting all these Yahoo Sports people for the first time. And, and Dave Morgan, who was the managing editor at Yahoo Sports at the time, he said, he said, Steve, we got to get you a credential to uh, we got to get your credential for Vancouver. And that was one of the things on my, my bucket list that I, I'd never even though I'd overseen coverage of the Olympics for the Globe and Mail. And I'd been involved in the sports desk at the at Canadian Press for the Olympics. I'd never been to one. And um, when you mentioned the blogs. Just having that access and, and being able to shoot skeets and email or later guys like Kelly Dwyer who took over Ball Don't Lie and Dan Devine and say, hey, guys, there's something going on with the Raptors. Can you write a blog post about this? And just um, Dan Wetzel, who I don't know if you guys followed all, but Dan Wetzel is, I think, to, the, to U.S. sports media with Stephen Brunn is to Canadian sports media. Uh, you know, at the Olympics, Wessel would come up and he'd be always be chirping me about the Canadian athletes, but he'd be the first guy to say, hey, Canada's athletes are having a hell of a run so far. Let me write a column for you. And just just great collaboration. And, uh, you know, at, at that time, we were starting to see cutbacks in the Canadian media industry. And yet Yahoo was a complete opposite. Like we we had 35 guys, Chris, in, in Vancouver in 2010. And I think we had 35 or 40 in London for, for in 2012. So to be part of a place where there was a real commitment to sports coverage and, and a, a willingness to work together. And again, you mentioned, you know, the, the opportunity to build a team in Canada with, with Sanaya and Sam McKaig and Trevor Wilker and Ian Denemy and Nate and all the bloggers that we brought in the Canadian side, Andrew Buckholz, who was doing our 55 yard line football blog, um, those are those are some of the best years of my of my uh, forty years in the business. Pre Yahoo, Steve, and twenty years before the Vancouver Games, and the privilege of covering those, uh, there was a Memorial Cup. Don Cameron always spoke about it fondly, and I think anybody involved in this game recognizes the nineteen ninety Memorial Cup, Kitchener, Oshawa, as the tournament that put junior hockey on the map in this country. I was thinking about it as we got ready for this conversation today, because we've had a lot of 1990 Memorial Cup stories on this podcast, including from some of the participants. And it seems like there were probably 350,000 fans at it over the, you know, instead of 35,000 or whatever they crammed it, 20,000, they crammed into cops. But uh, you got to cover it as a journalist. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, maybe the most fun week of my professional career, Mike. It's just a great week. I mean, we had, uh, you know, Tim Warnsby was writing at the Toronto Sun at the time, and Tim's a Waterloo guy. And so Tim and I were, were good friends at the time, became even better friends that week. And Jim Cressman and John Herbert from the London Free Press and Rick Mayo from the Ottawa Citizen and Donnie Brennan was there from the Ottawa Sun. Um, Steve Cannon was who, who I now work with a little bit at, at, through Bruce Power was the, uh, the KW record sports for our time. Just a, a great week of fun and just, just such a great week of hockey. And um, 
funny. I'd refereed Eric Lindros the, the year Eric had played it with, for the St. Mike's uh, buzzers as a 15-year-old. And just to see his game kind of take off at that uh, at that level, um, you know, that that tournament, I mean, Kamloops had uh, Scott Niedermeyer, Daryl Sador, Corey Hirsch was a goaltender, Ken Hitchcock was coaching, uh, Dave Shazowski was going to be a top, I think a top five or six draft pick in the NHL draft. Um, the Laval team was a lot of fun to cover with Pierre Kramer as a coach and Sandy McCarthy and Gino Ojek were both playing there two two real tough guys Martin LaPointe was part of that that team uh, and then Kitchener with Joe McDonnell and Mike Torcha and Stephen Rice and and that group too it was a great week I mean, one of the one of the you know kind of stories in the background that, that I always think of that makes me laugh is um Tim was a bit, Tim's a bit of a character. You might not, might not see that in his writing or when he appears on TV or the, the radio, but he's got a great sense of humor. And the first couple of days in Hamilton, things were a bit disorganized and, and um, there wasn't any food for the media and you go downstairs and you guys have both think been to the old cops Coliseum or whatever there's a call. Now they had that little room where the media and, and the, the official scores and the, the game night staff go and, they would have like a couple bowls of popcorn and chips. So by the second night, Tim and I said, it's ridiculous. So Tim says, that's it. I'm phoning pizza pizza and ordering a pizza. So halfway through the first period with this guy walks, the guy walks across the catwalk at cops Coliseum. And he says, uh, he says, Oh, I got, I've got a pizza here for a Tim Warnsby and Herb Morrell. We all know Herbie and love Herb. So Herb's going crazy, and he says, "Like who, who are who are friggin' pizza?" And uh, Tim and I said, "Listen, Herbie, like if you guys aren't going to feed us, we'll be doing this every night. We'll be phoning pizza pizza every night." Sure enough, the next night we get the press box with a nice tray of sandwiches and desserts and pop and everything. But we had a good laugh about that. And then the other thing was back then, the downtown Hamilton back then, nothing was open. There was one Chinese restaurant that would be open after nine o'clock at night. So I think we went to the Chinese restaurant for like 12 nights in a row to have, have a beer and something to eat after the game. So we, we had a lot of laughs that week. I think Tim, because of budget reasons, Tim, Tim and Donnie Brennan were sharing a hotel room. So we had a few laughs about that. And, and uh, you know, Brian Kilroy came down for a few nights. I remember sitting in the hotel lobby and, and spending an hour with Killer one afternoon, listening to him tell stories. But and then the hockey itself, you're absolutely right. That Those two Kitchener-Oshawa um, games, Mike, were just just thrillers. And uh, I, I think you're right. I think that was, uh, you know, that, that might have been a bit of a definitive, definitive moment for Canadian hockey, for Canadian junior hockey anyway. Note for okay. us, Chris, real quick. Sorry, Herbie Morrell has got to be on this podcast. I can't believe we keep forgetting that. <laughs> yeah, you, gotta, you, you, gotta get, you have to get Herb on there and, and make sure he, he lets loose. I made a note. Good man. Uh, some things never change. Sometimes media members have to get their own food and coffee. <laughs> well, you're right, Chris. It's a, it's, it comes to the territory. Right? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Steve, uh, where did where did the nickname Cubby come from? Oh, yeah. So that's another good story. So uh, when I was working the newspaper, there was a legendary recreation director, Keith Davidson, who was a real good athlete himself and and uh, it's funny, I actually, my first summer up here dated Keith's daughter, Kathy, and then later played, uh, played baseball with, with uh, Rob, his son, who's uh, still one of my best friends up here. And uh, so I get into a bit of a pee match with Keith. I had a, had a bit of a scoop. But it's funny, when I came to Concord in 81, there were two weekly newspapers here. 
and they hated each other's guts. So it was very, very competitive. Um, it just seemed crazy to me. You, you know, I remember going to council meetings uh, my first month on the job and the guy from the other paper looking like he was ready to kill me. And I'm thinking like, well, you don't even know me. Um, so anyway, I broke, I was going to break a story in the paper that week that they, there was going to be a $125,000 uh, facelift to the baseball parks in King Carden, which was a, which was a big deal. And I was playing for the senior baseball team here too. So it was a good story. Anyway, the recreation director caught, I phoned him for a comment. So he came down to the office and just reamed me, reamed me out and didn't want me to break the story. And I said, well, sorry, Keith, you know, it's a good story and I'm writing it. So he called me, uh, he said, well, you know, what do you know anyway? You're just a, you're just a young cub reporter. So I went uh, to, two nights later, I'm down at the baseball park and I'm telling my, my buddies on the baseball team about having a run-in with Keith. And sure enough, our first baseman, Dale Pollock, he, he started calling me Cubby. And the name still sticks. Every everybody around Kincard now, most of the guys know still know me as Cubby. You, that's great. I love it. Uh, you mentioned your father's time officiating, and and Dennis Potvin, who of course goes on to a hockey Hall of Fame career. I think we probably knew that when he was in Ottawa with the sixty sevens. But nonetheless, uh, you refereed some games where uh, Eric Lindros was playing with Toronto St. Mike's or with St. Mike's uh, players that you remember officiating games for steve or with uh any any lippy players stand out really uh, guys that gave you a hard time i don't know about guys that have a heart usually the funny guys like i remember um uh st mary's lincoln's had a really good junior b team in the mid 80s and uh don Luce, scott loose who now scouts the nhl was a goaltender and there was a defenseman named paul uh, kelpflush who was a hell of a hockey player i think he might have been a new jersey draft pick but I think his dad had died suddenly on the family farm and Paul decided to give up his hockey career to take over the farm. But incredibly talented guy. But there's a guy named Jeff Shipley, uh, who was a, a, also a good hockey player and a good sense of humor. And there's another guy named John Rowland, who had grown up in Lucknow, which is a small town just, just south of Kincardine here. And uh, John had found his way down to St. Mary's. And he, he had a great sense of humor. He was like 19, 20 years old. But I remember... Every time, every time I went to St. Mary's first face off, he'd come over and have some great one liner that would, uh, that would crack you up. Um, the Durham, Durham Hockey, the same thing. There was a guy, uh, Dean Nyman, who's one of the best hockey players I ever refereed. And Dean was a guy, I guess, who had been drafted by Oshawa, went down to Oshawa for a week, got homesick, moved back to Durham and never left again. And, uh, Dean was just one of those. You know, you always hear these stories. Funny, I was talking to someone about this not too long ago. If you go to small towns and you meant you talk about hockey, there always be some guy who grew up locally and played for the junior B team or played senior hockey or played intermediate hockey. And they always say, you know, that guy should have played in the NHL, but this happened or that happened. And Dean Iman was that guy, just a just a fabulous, highly skilled, tough, uh, you know, could be you, be you in a corner, be you with be you with the shot, be you with the pass. Just a, a great, great hockey player. Um, but I kind of, I, I tend to remember the people who I just had fun with. Like it's funny, even Lindros, like the year Lindros played in St. Mike's, I don't remember him being incredibly skilled. What I do remember is he was 15 years old and he was fearless. Like he would run, he would run a 20 year old a guy gladly. And Eric really hadn't filled out yet. He was a bit of a string bean, uh, but he had no problem going out there and taking on guys and, I think that year St. Mike's beat Sarnia in the Sutherland Cup Finals. And I remember uh, going to watch one of the games in that series. 
and Sarnia had a tough, uh, had a tough guy, uh, you know, a guy in his last year of junior hockey he was a bit of a thug. And uh, anyway, he, he challenged Eric to a fight during the pregame warmup. And I think this guy thought he was going to, you know, kick, uh, kick Eric's derriere. Anyway, Lindros laid such a being on the guy that they, his Sarnia teammates had to help this guy off the ice. It was so one-sided and so brutal. And so that was, again, that's something that you kind of, you, you remember. Um, I, I do remember, you, you know, I, I refereed uh, the Wilfrid Laurier Golden Hawks. My, I think my first year refereeing, uh, I got a couple of OUA games to work. And I was a little bit intimidated. And I remember uh, refereeing the Golden Hawks against the University of Mant- Manitoba at St. Mike's Arena in a Christmas tournament. And Wayne Gowing was coaching the team back then. And I think, you know, I was wasn't quite comfortable refereeing at that level yet I probably wasn't having a great game and I remember Wayne getting on me on me pretty good but I probably I probably deserved it you mentioned his name earlier but Scott Hutchinson and you uh played around to golf up at, I think it was at Ainsdale golf course um how, how'd that relationship come about and who won the golf golf round yeah, <laughs> I tell I gotta tell you, Chris Hutch, he kicked my derriere all over the place. <laughs> I mean, the guy plays seven times a week, Chris. What else is there to do? I guess. Yeah, I mean, what do you do up in Barry or Bradford <laughs> or wherever or Alliston, wherever Hutch is these days? I think he gave me four different hometowns. But I will say that's the one fun thing about refereeing is you meet. I've met so many good people through refereeing. I mean, Stephen Walkham, uh, Walkham and I went to level four and five together back in the, back in the eighties and spent time together. And I remember one night Walkham uh, working a game in Georgetown. I wanted to go out and get a bite to eat after the game. So he, he said, well, let's, let's drive to Milton because it's halfway home. Uh, next thing I know, Walkham runs out of gas in the 401 and I've got to drive into Milton and go get gas to fill him, fill him up again so he can get to get home that night. Um, you know, Hutch is a guy, I think Hutch and I might've met, uh, we might've met a level four and you, you know, you just kind of run into guys at clinics and that. And, and I think even though we didn't spend a lot of time together, there's a mutual respect and you certainly know who's working hockey and who's, you know, who's working it really well. And, and I, I followed Hutch's career into the OHL. And, uh, I think one of the, you know, you talk about there's so much bad stuff about social media day, these days, but there's also good stuff. I mean, this show, I mean, I think, uh, Mike, I reached out to you this summer after listening to the Hutch show and said, Hey guys, uh, you know, if you're ever desperate for a guest, I'd love to come on, come on and talk hockey with you guys. And that was a case for a Hutch where he just started, we started following each other and we would DM each other and we chirp each other a little bit on Twitter. And finally he said, Hey, I want to, let's get together in person and play a round of golf this summer uh, but you know, I, I go around and I mean, Clark, Clark Pollock, Clark's 80 now, he and I are still really good friends and I'm so grateful for the opportunities that Clark, Clark gave me, uh, in the OHA, um, Gary Gravitt, who I, you know, we worked in Allen cup together with Clark in, in 1983 and, and worked the Sutherland cup with Stratford and, uh, uh, the Henry Carr Crusaders in 83, Gary now owns uh, sunset golf course just outside of Godrich. And so I get down a couple of times a year and play with him. Uh, Bruce Murray, who introduced my wife and I, Bruce was an OHA linesman who worked for Mohawk uh, Racetrack and Woodbine for years. And, and Bruce is a concarden boy and, uh, and a, a you know, longtime referee. So we get together once in a while. Uh, you know, Scott Driscoll and I will, Scott Herbie, as we call each other, Herbie and I will text each other a couple of times a year to see what's going on. I've run into Scott at, at the rink in Guelph when our kids were playing minor hockey. So 
the Dvorskis, you know, I was telling Mike uh, last night, I mean, I got to know uh, Paul a little bit, refereed uh, Paul's first year of professional uh, hockey, the referee. I worked an AHL preseason game with Paul and Pat Smola down in, in Rochester. So I, I think I, the best part of refereeing was just all these really terrific people. I'm sure it's the same thing for you guys in the business. It's not just the broadcasters, but it's, you know, it's the scouts. It's the guy, the guy with the PA announcer. It's, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the guy who takes the tickets at the front door. Um, there's a lot of really good people in, in the game. And it's just, uh, it, it's those memories that you tend to remember and not the, the night where something, you know, there might've been something bad happened in a game or somebody threw a box of popcorn at you or whatever. It's funny because you start mentioning those names. And I was thinking about like Clark Pollock, absolutely. Here's the top of the pyramid, but you mentioned Bill Dvorsky earlier and, and Paul and fun fact, I worked for Mary about, 20 years ago oh, yeah. in radio, she was my news director. So, and in, in these parts, the region of Waterloo and Guelph, the Dvorsky name is a, a pretty big name, certainly when it comes to uh, officiating. AHL, though, you, you just mentioned with Paul, you, you said a moment ago that you didn't feel quite ready for that U Sports or CIS game you were officiating at one point. What's it like being on the lines in the American Hockey League? Yeah, that's a lot yeah, that was a little intimidating. So that, that happened. I moved to Georgetown in 85. I left Concord and went to the weekly paper in Georgetown. And I got to know Brian Lewis, who was the director of officiating at the time. I, I coached Brian's daughter, Janelle, in, in uh, softball in, uh, in Hornby, just outside of Georgetown, was refereeing in, in the OHA. And I just had moved from being a linesman to, to refereeing, I think, in 80. 86 and uh in 87 brian gave me an opportunity to go to go to rochester with paul and pat and work a, a an exhibition game between the americans and the canadian olympic hockey team which now just going back this morning i was doing some prep work for the show and just going back and looking at the lineup and um you know that olympic team dave king was coaching it and sean burke was the goaltender and I do remember Chris, uh, Chris Felix, who I'd seen play some OHL games. Chris was a really good defenseman with the, with the Sioux Greyhounds, uh, you know, ran the quarterback and, and a count, really offensively talented player. Uh, I remember Von Carpen because Von was like five foot three. It, it looked like on the ice. The one thing I do remember from that game though, and then Rochester, Donnie Lever was, Donnie Lever was at the coming towards the end of his career my dad had refereed Don when he played for the Niagara Falls Flyers and, and Steve Ludzik uh, back in the OHL days. And Steve Ludzik was on that, uh, was on that. Uh, sorry, that was in our team. I'll, I'll get that story after. But, uh, you know, Donnie Lever was there. John Van Boxmere was the coach. I think that was Darren Poopa's first year in, in the Buffalo organization. But the one thing I remember from that game vividly is um, I was getting ready to drop the puck in the first period. And, and they played this game at the uh, at the uh, RIT arena, the, the college rink in Rochester. And Wayne Van Dorp was playing for, for Rochester. So I look over my shoulder to drop the puck in the face off. And I don't know if you guys remember Wayne Van Dorp, but he was he was a tough guy. This guy was six foot four, 225 pounds, which back then was, was a big man in hockey. And Wayne it looked like he had his nose broken about 73 times. And it, he was such a big man. His, his jersey, the, the sweater only went up to here on his arm. And he's looking. He's looking at the guys around him. And I think, holy crap. I, I can't get the puck down and get out there quickly <laughs> enough. But that, 
that was actually fun. And then a year later, Brian, uh, he assigned me to work uh, an exhibition game in Newmarket when the Leafs had their farm team in Newmarket and they were playing the Saginaw Generals. And just some of the names from that game, like uh, Jim Ralph was the, was the backup goalie that night for the Saints. And I remember, you know, joking with him because I'd, I'd seen him play junior hockey in Ottawa with the 67s. Uh, um, Eddie Belfort was a rookie that year with Saginaw. Uh, Bill Gardner was playing for Saginaw and he was getting on towards the end of his career. Uh, Mike Hudson, who, you know, had a really good junior career and, and grew up in Rockwood was, was a rookie with that, with that Chicago farm team. Uh, but what happened that night is there was a guy named Jim Houston, Mike, and I don't remember uh, Jim Houston out of Oshawa refereeing the OHL. This was his first year refereeing pro hockey. And, and we only had, I was the only linesman who showed up that night. And so it was just, we were going to work a two-man system, me as a linesman, Jim refereeing. And it was uh, a preseason game, and it was a game, there was a World Series game on that night. So I think there were maybe like 40 people in the seats at Newmarket. Anyway, we get in the second period, and um, all of a sudden, there's a five-on-five after the whistle. And Jim and I are thinking, holy shit, how are we going to, what are we going to do here? And all of you guys remember, there was a big defenseman, Terry Johnson, Terry bounced around the NHL with a few different teams, and he kind of looked a little bit like Larry Robinson when Larry first joined the Canadians. Anyway, he was a big, probably again, like 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, so Terry Johnson went around to every every pairing and said, you guys knock it off right now. I want to get home and watch the baseball game. <laughs> and Jim and I just, we put our wheels in our pockets, and we just sat back and watched this guy break up every single scrum, and that was it. <laughs> Guys broke up and skated away. That's awesome. Okay, just a, you know, that, just the fun. That's the kind. That's the stuff you remember. That's just stuff that makes makes you laugh. And you're, how are you thinking? Like how how did that just happen? I don't know who would have to do more skating in a two man system, the ref oh. or the linesman. <laughs> but both are skating way too much. I think. Um, I you mentioned baseball, and I got to ask this doesn't have anything to do with the OHL, but I know Farzi and I are going to like this. The legendary Bob Elliott. You guys are good friends. What, what's he like away from, you know, his articles? Just, uh, just a, a great guy. And I'll, like Bob and I, we'll, we'll exchange emails uh, every month or, you know, every once a month or whatever. And just got such a, a great sense, a great sense of humor and dry and funny. And, and talk about a guy like this, is a guy that's not just a great baseball writer, Chris. He's like, he is baseball in Canada. This, this guy is coached at the AAA level. He's helped kids get, scholarships and, 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 you know, advancing baseball, uh, you know, through this Canadian baseball network. He, I mean, that he started that website. He's not making any money off, but, but he's developed, he's developing uh, sports writers from that, from that website. Uh, he's telling stories, Mike, you mentioned earlier about junior hockey. Bob's telling stories that wouldn't, wouldn't otherwise get told in Canadian baseball. And this guy is such a great ambassador for, for Canadian baseball. It goes beyond the fact that he's, you know, far and away the greatest baseball writer this country's ever produced. But I'll tell you, the secret behind Bob was, and I covered the Blue Jays for three years with Canadian Press, and again, was in the right place at the right time, and it was covering them when they won both the World Series championships in 92 and 93. But you'd go down before a day of a game, and you'd, you know, you'd hang out around the batting cage, and you might talk to a few players or whatever, and then you know, 99% of us would go up to the press box to have our pregame dinner, 
you finish your dinner, you get down and look at the field and there's Bobby, you know, Bobby talking one-on-one with the manager or one-on-one with the hitting coach or one-on-one with the star, with the superstar player from the other team. And Bob was just, he was better, better at doing his job than everybody else. The guy work, works, uh, would work the phone tirelessly, tirelessly at night. Um, a lot of people probably don't know Bob has a bit of a sleeping disorder, so it's really hard for him to go to sleep. So it was very common for him to be on the phone with West Coast writers at four or five o'clock in the morning after those guys had filed talking about stuff that was going on in the league. But as great as a sports writer as, as Bob is, he just he's such a better person. He's just one of those guys that you uh, you know you love you love to death. He just he's, he's a classic. We were chatting just before we started recording this episode about last week's episode with Troy Smith and how many old Windsor arena stories we got from Troy, which seems to be like, we could probably have a sub podcast if there is such a thing, just about old Windsor arena stories. You though, Steve got to ply your trade in one of the best barns anywhere, certainly in this province, the venerable Allman arena in Stratford did a bunch of Cully's games and Ed Olchick was there the time you were there, but tell us about some of your memories of the Allman arena. Yeah, that uh, that '83 team that lost to Henry Carr in the Sutherland Cup final that that was such a fun year because, like I said, we it seemed we I was going there with Clark almost every Friday night to work those games, and uh, you know Dave Cressman was coached that team that year. Just a real gentleman, you know. You don't you don't hear a lot of talk about coaches anymore, but he was such a nice nice guy, kind of guy where you you know always wanted to make sure at the start of the game that you you took the Stratford blue line and you got a chance to go over the bench and have and exchange pleasant pleasantries with Dave and that year um you know we were talking old check let the league up that year and and again just as great a hockey player he was just a really really nice guy and I remember talking to him on the bench one night and it was late in the season and they weren't playing him a lot because they were trying to keep him healthy for the playoffs and he was sitting there telling me in the bench how you know he's so upset because they won't let me go back they won't let me go on the ice Steve and I you know I just want to play and and it's a 16-year-old kid. And I remember seeing him score a goal in Lestville one night where he took a wrist shot from just inside the blue line and stuck the puck under the net. Uh, you know, just a flick of the wrist and, that, and the puck was in the net. Um, and they played uh, – the Henry Carr team they played in the final that year that they lost. They got really badly beaten up in the playoffs. I think um, Mark Maui, who you guys will know from, from Kitchener, Gus Maui's son, uh, I think Mark got injured in that series. And I think they had two or three defensemen, two or three forwards that had to go back and play defense. Their blue line was so badly beaten up. But that Henry Carr team had Bob Asenza in goal, who would go on and play in the NHL with, with Winnipeg. Uh, Scott Mellonby, who, you know, we don't have saying about. Scott Mellonby was on that team. Uh, Victor Poza, who I think had a cup of coffee with Washington in the NHL. Uh, there were two brothers by the name of Loudon. I think Bob and Bill Loudon, who played, uh, who went to New Hampshire on scholarships. Like that team was just uh, was just loaded. And uh, and then the, the Almond, you know, things like uh, I remember Henry Carr in that series bringing three busloads of fans in the rink with uh, with carrying Jabex balls or rocks in it and shaking Jabex bottles. And the Henry Carr guys putting a ghetto blaster on top of the net for the pregame warm up and just blasting the music. And, and just, I think every time he skated, uh, every time he skated on the ice at the Alma, it just felt special. Cause as you guys both know, it doesn't matter if they're playing, you know, the worst team in the league in November, there's going to be a thousand people in there on a Friday night and they're going to be loud. 
And there's just such a charm to the rink, even though the, you always had to hang in the referee's room. You always had to hang, be careful where you hung your clothes up because if someone spilled a drink in the stands, it would drip down into the referee's room. So that was one of the first things that Clark taught me when I was getting to learn all these buildings in the league. He would always tell me where to sit and where to hang my clothes up, my suit up. Um, but I, yeah, I have a, and then, you know, lucky enough where my nephew, Kirk Colling played for the Colletons in the, in the, I think, uh, early 2000s on back-to-back Sutherland Cup teams and actually had a chance to watch Kurt celebrate one of those cups at the odd, uh, or sorry, I, I, sorry, not, not, the, not the Sutherland Cup, but they knocked out the Dutchman one year to, to win the Midwestern title. And I, I remember my family and I going to the odd to watch, watch that game and helping him celebrate, celebrate that. Um, and then my youngest daughter, Alexa, she played in the, uh, off the championships one year in Stratford and had a chance to play one of the games in the tournament of the Almond. And I, you know, she was, ha- wasn't having a, wasn't having a very good tournament. She's beating herself up. And I'm, I just said to her, I said, Alexa, you know, you get it. You're playing at the Almond arena this afternoon. I said, just enjoy the experience. It's that, that there's so many great memories in that rank it's a chance for you just to, you know, have fun being in a, in a place that's, that's special to your, to your dad. Um, and I think that actually that that helped to relax a little bit. But yeah, I've got a lot of uh, yeah. You, you just remember those buildings, right, Mike? It's a it's a little bit like the odd too. I mean, the odds evolved over time. I mean, I, I I dated a, when I was going to Ryerson. I dated a Kitchener girl my last two years at journalism school, and I remember going to the odd back then to watch the Rangers. And even though that the rinks changed quite a bit, it still got a still got an amazing charm to it. You mentioned those back-to-back uh, Sutherland Cup teams. Uh, that was the year I was playing in the league. Oh, really? I got, yeah, I got my first start in Stratford on a Saturday night. Oh, my God. After they had – it was a 03-04. They had won the year before. And I'm 17, and he's starting me on the road against the defending Sutherland Cup champs. And we just got murked. It who, was who so bad. Who uh, was golf dominators. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. 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 I remember we were we had their a player on their team came uh, Kelsey Blinkhorn. He came yeah. to our team, yeah, yeah. and uh, he was telling us all about the rink and stuff. And we're outside stretching, and I'm looking at this building. I'm going, this is going to be a blast. I go in the room. I start getting dressed. I'm sweating. It's <laughs> so hot in the dressing room. This is like game five of the season. We're a terrible team, and they're cranking up the heat in the visiting dressing room just to get an advantage. We go out for warm up. And there's fans just screaming at me. Pope, you suck. Pope, you're dead. I'm like, how do they know who I am? Like, <laughs> I'm just a rookie. And yeah, I think the final score was uh, 12-1. It wasn't uh, that. The best part, though, was, of course, the place is packed. And uh, I started the second period for whatever reason. We were down 6 nothing after the first, I think. And they're 5 nothing after the first. And the coach comes in loses his mind on us, gets us all fired up to go back out for a game. And I'll never forget it. Opening draw. Everyone's like, okay, yeah, now we're going to go. Centerman snaps it back clean. D, D, up to the wing. One step over the blue line. Boom. <laughs> well, that didn't last long. <laughs> and I, I'm getting pulled and I go skating across the goal line. And there's this old gentleman. He's probably 70-something, leaning back in his chair, feet up on the chair in front of him. And he just goes, <laughs> gives me a wave. <laughs> That's, I love that rink ever since. That sounds like the guy uh, when I moved to Toronto in 85 or 86 and I started refereeing the, the junior B hockey there. I used to go to Newmarket on Thursday nights at the old the old arena there. And there was some guy, apparently he'd won the, the 649 or something. He's the same 70-year-old guy. 
he'd stand on the chair and hang over the glass and all, he'd just yell at the referee the whole night. So I, I got to the point where I got to know this guy. So I would deliberately make the point of going over to him before the game and ask him how he was, because that would drive him crazy. He'd even get it. He'd even get Then he would get mad. He'd be mad that I would go over and say, Hey, hello, sir. How are you tonight? And he would, that would just get him in a state. And I just, so great way to, you know, ease a bit of tension before a game. And, and again, part of the fun of being, being an official. Couldn't help but notice Steve on the uh, right hand school ring. Uh, the bobble there, uh, championship ring. What are we, what are we wearing? So this is, uh, yeah. So I, I was just down to my wife and I were, Julie, were just down to the Maritimes, uh, uh, last month to, to visit family. My dad lives in Nova Scotia now and, uh, he's 85. So getting up there a bit and, uh, he, he was given this ring the year he worked in the American hockey league. And so he wanted me to, wanted me to have this ring. And he also gave me his, uh, American hockey league linesman sweater from that year. Wow. Uh, so, cool. I, yeah, I was, you know, it's funny. I was always kind of hoping that, you know, that, that one day, um, you know, I certainly uh, hoping my dad's going to be around for a lot longer because he's, he's incredible, incredible health. And he's, he's one of these, he's a, he's, it's crazy guys. He, he gets up every morning and does, uh, does a hundred pushups and 200 sit-ups and the stretching regimen. And, and, uh, I mean, for 85 years old, it's, it's remarkable, but I was, uh, always hope that there'd be a day where I would uh, I certainly want his lines and sweater because it certainly means, uh, means a lot to me. And uh, it's the one thing Mike and Chris, I don't know if you, if you guys find this, if you, when you talk to people about officiating, but uh, I was talking to somebody on the weekend and I was so lucky. We were so lucky as kids where we had these mentors. I, I think the one thing with is we're having a hard time recruiting hockey officials. Now, I think one of the reasons is that they're just, we just don't have enough mentorship for whatever reason. And when I was, when I was growing up in Prescott, we had three or four men, including my dad, who were refereeing tier two junior hockey, working in the OHL, uh, working senior hockey. And then we had some experienced minor hockey officials. And so when we started refereeing, we had a lot of support. Like we would go on the ice with these guys. And if a coach was yelling at us or whatever, you knew, you know, you had a guy who'd referee tier two junior for 15 years, go over the bench right away and tell him to knock it off. And that was the end of it. And uh, I, I think we, we miss that today where we don't have enough of those guys, you, you know, uh, to just support these kids and teach them the ropes and learn, teach them how to handle certain situations. And we joke about those car rides, but I, I learned so much in those car rides with, with guys like Clark Pollock and, and Tom Morgan, who was a, a longtime referee up here, died a few years ago. Um, just learned a lot, a lot about refereeing and about, about how to handle people and how to manage a game just from those trips. How did you, uh, how'd you like teaching at the College of Sports Media? Loved it. And, you know, it's, it's not that, you, you know, you'd like to take credit, but you can't. <laughs> You know, I, I look at the I look at the names again of the people who come through that program, Chris. That I that I was lucky enough to spend time with, and you know, Faisal Kamisa and Danielle Michaud and uh, Ashley Docking. Uh, Sean McKenzie was a student of mine. Uh, Israel Fear, who came and worked for me at Yahoo eventually, who's now uh, just got named senior N- I think senior NHL editor last week for the Athletic. Who's back in Vancouver now. Um, you know, can go on. Uh, Allie Monroe, who you guys have probably met uh, through her work with the Steelheads uh, on game nights. And uh, so I, you know, I had a chance to meet some really good young people and, and 
Uh, there's a really good soccer writer at uh, Sportsnet now, Peter Galindo, who has his own soccer podcast. And so when I see these people turn up and I see that they've got a job at Sportsnet or they're doing this, like Matt Scooby was a student of mine who's now working at CTV Ottawa and is a news anchor. And most of the people that you see are having success, it doesn't surprise you because I taught an online writing course there and you, and I, you would get a pretty good sense just from teaching one class that, yeah, this this kid's going somewhere going somewhere uh, adam scully's another guy adam was a student of mine who's now uh you know doing a, a bunch of really good work for tsn on the golf side and he's i think he's still involved with junior hockey magazine and and uh and i i i, I, I really do love teaching i don't know if the students that they learn anything from me but i sure love i sure love talking to them and, and trying to impart a little bit of wisdom all that popey not one mention of you i he wasn't there when i was there <laughs> I know, he got out he got out in time no, I was I there before him. Oh, you were pre pre Mac. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I you know what the, you mentioned a name, Steve. I just want to give a little bit more uh, time to, and that's Danielle Michaud. Her cancer journey and and survival notwithstanding, Danielle uh, was an intern. Uh, came on board as an intern when I was working the morning show at the Fan about a decade ago, and just to think of somebody putting in the time that she did because getting up at four o'clock in the morning for no pay is not the easiest thing. And we talked about mentorship and paying dues. And there's somebody, every time I see her, I think back to that, those mornings that, you know, the right attitude, the right approach coming in there, doing her thing on our radio morning show and, and look at her now kids. <laughs> yeah. And those, those people, just like you guys, I mean, they create their own breaks, right? I mean, their, their, their work ethic and their ability to get along with people and it's just not about knowing sports because as we we both know i mean you guys probably see it at the rink every friday night there's a ton of people out there that know a lot about sports but um it's not you know what what we do isn't easy it does require a certain skill set and and uh and the one thing i will say and i i've told students as i, I taught at ryerson for a semester too is that relationships do matter and, and people can sneer all they want is it's you know not not what you know is who you know i, I you know you have to know something but also people, the relationships you make along the way do open doors. And I got my big break at Canadian Press because I had uh, I had gone to school with uh, Scott White. Uh, Scott was uh, in the last year of the journalism program. And I played on the on the Ryerson journalism ball hockey team my first year at Ryerson. Uh, I'll tell you guys, this, this team was so bad. I was literally the only guy on the team that could raise the orange ball. And it, it was it was comical, and and we were we were awful. But Scott uh, Scott remembered me from uh, from that ball hockey team. And then in 1987, like almost 10 years later, I ran into him at the Pan American Games in Indianapolis when I was working for Metroland, and and we were sitting in the Canadian media room one night having a beer. And I just said to Scott, I said, Hey, listen, I you know I've been working a week in newspapers for six years now, and I'm I feel like I'm ready to take the next step, or I'd like to take the next step, and Sure enough, about 12 months later, I got a phone call from him and they were they were looking for a sports writer for their Toronto office. So um, it's it's first impressions and relationships really, really do matter a lot in this business. That picture on your wall behind you. Um, yeah. That's that's not that's not Milo Songa, the big three setter, is it? That looks like there's a lot of people on the court there. 
That's so that's the uh, 2000. Um, I did two stints at Tanis Canada. So I guess the moral of the story is that I've, I've had a hard time keeping to holding down a job in this business. I uh, thought it was, I, I, I didn't know we had the Tanis Canada link too. I used to do top yeah. spin radio there. Well, there you go. So yeah, that, that's right, Chris. I remember that now. Yeah. So I had, uh, I'd got, I'd after the World Series in 93, I'd always wanted to work in sports PR. And Tom Maynack was an old friend of mine who was director of communications at Tennis Canada back then. I took a $20,000 pay cut to go to Tennis Canada. I thought my wife was going to kill me. And, uh, and then literally a year into my time at Tennis Canada, I got a phone call from Bob Goodenow. And uh, Bob was looking for some, someone to do media relations at the NHL Players Association at the time of the lockout in 94. So I left Tennis Canada, and, and then in 97, I, I had a chance to go back. And uh, so that picture is from the 2000, the first, uh, remember, Chris, when they started the Tennis Master Series events? Yep. So that was, we, we dropped the tobacco sponsorship, I guess, in 99, and this was the first year of the, uh, of the tournament. And so uh, they had the, these, you know, branding colors. that They painted the court purple. A uh, friend of mine in Concordia, Dan Wilkin, who's my best friend here now, Dan was running the sporting goods store in the town at the time, and I got him to do jerseys, hockey jerseys, with the Tennis Masters Canada logo on it. And all 50 players in the tournament came on court for opening night with those jerseys on. That's and I, cool. think, I can't remember uh, all the guys in that picture, but Sampras is in there, uh, Gustavo Kirtan. I think Magnus Norman was the number one player in the world at that time from Sweden. And the woman in the front was Melanie Doan, the, the singer who had, uh, who had come up with a, a, te- a theme song that year for the, for the tournament. So that, yeah, that's opening night at the old uh, National Tennis Center at York University. Okay, so Steve McAllister, the sequel podcast, is going to be all tennis all the time because yeah. I'm a nut for the game. So we got to do that. Well, I'm going to talk about my game, Mike. <laughs> or, or mine, Steve. Or mine. <laughs> you referenced it earlier uh, that you sent a note and said, if we're ever desperate, you know, reach out. Certainly far from. And I'm so sorry we didn't do this sooner. Uh, what, a, what a ride. This has been a whole, whole lot of fun, Mac, and I can't thank you enough for doing it. No, it's fine, guys. And hopefully, uh, maybe we'll have to get Hutch and I. We'll, we'll, come on, we'll come on as a tag team and we'll, uh, we'll really entertain the troops for an hour. It's perfect. Hey, Kincardine's got the best sunset I've ever seen. And if we bring in Hutch, that's four people. We could probably make it out to Ainsdale. My grandma's trailer is a kilometer away. We could got a spot uh, to stay for some beverages after, that's, too. That's a date. We're, we're going to do that next summer for sure, guys. That, that would be an absolute uh, blast. Maybe we, maybe we can do a remote show from the patio to Ainsdale, the 19th of Perfect. You're Love reading. It. You're reading my mind. We'll take this thing on the road. We'll get Hutch. We'll get Mac, and the two of us knuckleheads. It'll be a perfect night. That's, that's, I'll that's hop great. on the back of Farzi's bike, and he can <laughs> drive us up there. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I can find a Mennonite family, Chris, to come down there with the horse and pick you guys up. <laughs> perfect, <laughs> Steve. It's been a ton of fun. Thanks a million for doing this with us. Yeah, thank you guys. Really appreciate it. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. 
Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.